God, you are so incredibly good. And I love that your word tells us that you are our rock. You are our refuge, our strength, our provision, our salvation. And you have given us everything through your son. And I'm so grateful that I know him. I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters here and who may be listening online who know you through Christ. There is nothing more important, there is nothing greater than to have you as our Savior. Father, as we look into Psalm 51 this morning, I pray that you would give us grace. Teach us, guide us, help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the title of this morning is Oh So Slightly Misleading, because the title of the message is The Joy of Salvation. But for those who are familiar with Psalm 51, and if you're not, you will be very soon, Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. So what we're really going to talk about this morning is repentance. I'm kind of waiting for people to get up. Um, I think it's a very important topic. It's a topic we don't talk about enough as the big C church. Um, And so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 51. Now, we are going to focus on verse 12, where David prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, because joy is one of the marks of the Christian life. And there seems to be, by definition, a difference between happiness and joy, right? Happiness, oh, I've already started to use the word right, as a placeholder. I need someone with a coffee cup and nickels. Happiness is an emotion of well-being that is dependent upon the outward circumstances of my life. So happiness could be, I got a full cup of coffee. Okay, it's half full, but I'm pretty happy. But what happens when I run out of coffee? My happiness is gone. Well, at least a little bit of it, just a little bit. Happiness, though, is based on outward circumstances. And because it's based on outward circumstances, it can change, and it can change very quickly because our outward circumstances can change very quickly. Joy is an emotion that is evoked from internal circumstances. It is a variable um, that doesn't change based on what's external. This internal joy comes from the awareness that my sins have been forgiven, and because joy deals with the inner relationships rather than the outward relationships, it's not a variable like happiness. Joy can be more constant. It can be a constant experience because of that consciousness of God. And so it's interesting That in the midst of a difficult or hard or tragic circumstance, we can still experience joy. We can have the fullness of joy where happiness is different. Happiness is not always constant. Now, if you're one of those people that's always happy, I love you, but you're very annoying. We can be very joyful. 
We can be joyful in the Lord. We can be joyful because of who He is and all that He has done for us in Christ. And I have no problem expressing joy because it doesn't matter how bad it is, whatever it might be. You can always go back. I'm still saved. I'm still forgiven. I'm still loved by my gracious God and Creator. Right? There are still things that can bring us joy. Those things don't change. Happiness, however, and this is a big problem we see in our world today, isn't it? People chasing happiness. Because you can chase it all you want. I know you might get some here and you might get some there, but circumstances don't remain constant. They change, and so happiness changes. So the first thing we're going to look at is Psalm 51. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read through the whole psalm, and then we're going to come back and kind of talk about various parts of it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So the first thing we see coming from David is an appeal to God's mercy. An appeal to his love, to his kindness, and and a request to be cleansed of his sin. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So the next couple verses, he acknowledges the act of sin that he has committed. He acknowledges that this is basically causing him some sort of turmoil, right? My sin is always before me. And he acknowledges who he sinned against. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, we can wrong other people. We can offend other people. When we commit some sort of sin, some sort of transgression, that has a negative consequence on other people. Sometimes we need to apologize for that. Sometimes we need to try to make that right. But I can't sin against you. And you can't sin against me because you and I are not perfect. You and I are not holy in and of ourselves. We've been given the righteousness of Christ, which is amazing and awesome and fantastic. But we are all sinful beings. We're all in the same boat. Now, if I hurt you, if I offend you, if I my sin or my actions or my words in some way injure you, then I need to try to make that right. I need to apologize to you. But I don't actually sin against you. I sin against him. Because he is holy and perfect and righteous. And David recognized that. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. So he acknowledges the the theological concept that we talk about known as original sin, that we as descendants of Adam are born sinful. Now, we don't act on that till you know later on in life and we are not held accountable for that later on. And I love when people try to argue over original sin. Oh, we're not, you know, how could you tell me that a baby this beautiful little bundle of joy is, is, is a sinner. Well, because they're human. 
and as human beings, we're sinful. Now, that baby is not accountable. God's not going to send that baby to hell if that baby dies, because that's not how it works. But we are born in sin. And if you don't believe me, anybody in here who has kids, did any of you have to teach your children how to lie? No, you don't have to teach your children how to lie, do you? You have to teach them how to tell the truth. Did any of you have to teach your children how to be selfish? Right? When they were two years old, did you sit them down and go, look, when you're holding the toy and your brother wants it, pull it away, bite him, and say, mine! Do you teach your children how to do that? No, that comes naturally. You have to teach your children not to do that because we are born sinful. But God wants us to have truth. God wants us to have his wisdom. That's what verse 6 says. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Now, hyssop, if you want to go back, you can read the book of Leviticus. It's always good practice to do so. Um, there's a lot of great stuff in there for us to learn. But hyssop, they would, they would dip hyssop in blood, and they would use it to sprinkle the implements in the temple. Um, it is believed that that's how they struck the doorposts and lintel uh, on, during the Passover when God killed all the firstborn in Egypt. Right? They dipped the hyssop in the blood of the lamb, and they painted the door with it so that the angel would pass over. So it's always connected with sacrifice and forgiveness. But wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. And I always appreciate that. We remember that David is a shepherd. And as a shepherd, one of the things that shepherds would practice, um, they would, uh, Psalm 23 talks about this, your rod and your staff comfort me. Now, the staff is what we think of, the big shepherd's hook. And yes, the shepherd could use the big hook to put it around a sheep's neck, pull it back in, that sort of thing. But the rod was for two things. The rod was to defend the flock and to discipline the flock. And back in the day, if you had a little lamb that was constantly straying away from the flock, the shepherd would break its leg with the rod. Sounds pleasant, right? But then what would the shepherd do? The shepherd would put the lamb on his or her shoulders and carry it around until that bone mended. And once that bone mended, that little lamb never left their shepherd's side again. So it may sound harsh, but in the end, it was for the protection of that animal. Now we, the Bible says, we are sheep. And you know what? Sometimes God has to break us down to teach us not to stray. David's recognizing that. And he wants God to hide his face from his sins and to blot out his iniquities. Now verse 10, 11, 12, very, very famous verses of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. I love this. When we sin, 
Right? He's acknowledged his sin. He's acknowledged it's against God. He's sorry for his sin. He wants to be forgiven. He wants to be restored. And the first thing is he recognizes that my heart needs cleansing. And only God can do that. My spirit has suffered from my sin. And he wants God to renew it. The joy of his salvation. The joy of knowing that forgiveness. And the presence of God was damaged by the sin. And he wants it back. And he doesn't want to lose the presence of God. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And he says, when you do that, then I'll teach other people your ways and sinners will be converted. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So he wants to be delivered from the guilt of bloodshed. And in case you don't remember, Psalm 51 was written after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. We're going to talk about that a little later. God of my salvation, I will sing aloud your righteousness. But verse 16 and 17, you don't want a sacrifice, or I'd give it. You don't want a burnt offering. What do you want? You want a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, in one of the prophets, and I can't remember which one. There's only like 16 in the Bible. I'm sure you can find it. Um, Told the people of Israel, rend your hearts and not your garments. It's very common back then that if you did something wrong or you were in mourning, right, you would tear your garment, you would sit on the ground, you would throw ashes in the air to demonstrate that. And God says, I don't care about these external demonstrations. I want your heart. I want your heart to be right. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. They, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Once your heart is right with God, then the sacrifices make sense. But not before. So first, let's define joy. We actually see a lot of it in the Bible, and and I was somewhat restrained in what I put in here because there's a lot of places where joy is spoken of. And David was a man who did experience tremendous joy, and he wrote many of the Psalms that bear his name, including things of joy. So Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There, David related that the joy that he had came from the consciousness of the presence of God, consciousness that his sins were forgiven, and not just joy, but the fullness of joy. Psalm 32, 1 through 2, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Remember that word blessed. It's, we, we see it as a beatitude. It's a, it's a state of supreme well-being before God. 
Psalm 35, verse 9, And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. Psalm 42, 4, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. That's just four examples out of the 150 individual psalms. That's just four. Jesus speaks of the fullness of joy that he desires that we should have. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, verse 23 through 24, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. In these two passages... Jesus relates the fullness of joy to the word of God in prayer. I love that. You want to have more joy in your life. Open this book. Spend time in it and pray. It's really hard for your joy not to grow when you are spending a lot of time in the presence of God. Of course, we spend all our time in the presence of God, but that's a different message. I think... And I don't know about you. I don't know all of your church backgrounds. I've served in several churches. I've served in a couple of different denominations. And I've been around a lot of people who hate the word joy and call themselves Christians. You ever met those people? Am I the only one? Wow. Good for you. I've been around those people. Where they come to church and, boy, they complain about everything. Oh, the music's too loud. Oh, the preaching's too long. Why does the pastor wear such ugly shirts? Walmart special. You know, I've met those people. I one time gave a message where I talked about how, and I've said this here before, and I'll say it many, many more times, I will welcome anybody in our church. Right? If, if somebody comes in um, with a beard and a dress on, we will welcome them in our church. We are not going to affirm their lifestyle because it's sinful. We're not going to tell them that it's okay, that they just need to follow their heart. But we're going to welcome them. We're going to love them. We're going to share the gospel with them. We are going to talk about sin and judgment. We like to do that. At least I do. Um, but we're going to love them and welcome them. So I said that once. And I, it was actually, it wasn't so much about necessarily a drag queen, but as a, if a homosexual person walked in our church... I would welcome them. I had this couple pull me aside after church. How dare you? How dare you say that? We wouldn't welcome them in here. They're going to hell. They don't deserve to come to church. I'm like, uh -uh. well, if we don't want them to go to hell, shouldn't they come in? Shouldn't we tell them about Jesus? How else are they going to not go to hell if we don't share the gospel with them? Oh, well, no, they wouldn't be welcome here. And I looked at them and I said, yes, they would. And if you don't like it, you know where the door's at. Well, they listened. They didn't come back. And they'd been part of that church for about 15 years at that point. And then I had people get mad at me for that. And I didn't care. Because my job, your job, we're here to tell people about Jesus. 
and I will share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they sound like. I don't care how they're dressed. I don't care if they're, they're clean as a whistle and driving a fancy car or if they're filthy and living in a box. They deserve to hear the gospel. God loves them so much that he sent his son. And then he loves them so much that he sent us to tell them. How dare we ever disagree with that? But there's a lot of people, I got off track real quick, didn't I? Um, there's a lot of people who struggle with the concept of joy. They don't, they don't get it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There's times in my life I don't get it. There's times in my life where I forget, or at least I'm not focused on those things that would bring me wonderful joy. I'm focused on other things. But the word in prayer can always bring us back. Peter and Paul both talked about it, and then I'm done giving examples. 1 Peter 1.8 Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Inexpressible joy because of the love relationship we have with Jesus Christ. In Galatians 5.22, Paul wrote that one of the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit which is love. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. It says the fruit of the Spirit is. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. One of the manifestations of that love is joy. Clearly, we can see the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is external and can change as situations and circumstances change. Joy is internal and eternal internal and eternal because it comes from our relationship with God through Jesus. A relationship of love where we know our sins are forgiven and that we are destined to spend eternity in the presence of God. This is joy. Now, number two, the loss of joy. When you go back to Psalm 51 and you go back to verse 12, David prays Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The only reason he would pray that is if he had lost it. That would be the only reason. Right? I wouldn't ask somebody to, you know, hey, you remember you borrowed my lawnmower? Can I have it back? Restore to me the joy of lawn mowing. But that wouldn't make any sense if you didn't borrow my lawnmower. Restore to me the joy of my salvation doesn't make any sense unless he had lost it. And since the joy comes from fellowship with God and living in the consciousness of the presence of God, David lost that because of his sin. Because sin breaks fellowship with God. I cannot bring God, pure and holy as he is, into a communion with me in my sin. I'm going to say that again. I cannot bring God, pure and holy as he is, into a communion with me in my sin. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, 
so that he will not hear. This is the tragedy of sin. Even for those of us who have believed in Jesus. Now, for those who don't believe in God, who don't believe the gospel, their sin has separated them from God totally and completely, and if they don't repent and come to a relationship in Christ, will separate them from God eternally. But for those of us in Christ, right, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We are always in the presence of God, but it doesn't change that our sin breaks fellowship. Think of it as a marriage, because it is, right? We are told that we as the church are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is our bridegroom. And one day he's coming back for his bride, and I can't wait. Like, I'm really excited about going to camp because we're leaving in, you know, like three hours. I'm super excited about it. If Jesus came back before that, I would not be disappointed. At this point, because I skipped breakfast, I'm kind of excited about lunch. And if Jesus came back before that, I wouldn't even be upset. I can't wait. But that's the tragedy of sin. It breaks that fellowship. So we go back to the marriage illustration, right? I love my wife. We have great fellowship, if you want to call it that. And sometimes we get angry with each other. Thank you, Jack, right? It's unbelievable. And believe it or not, sometimes I make her mad. Thank you for the gasps. That was amazing, and I appreciate it. More likely, though, I've done something. Um, now, we made a commitment uh, uh, going on 26 years ago, and when we first got married, we said we would never sleep apart because we're angry. Right? We're going to sleep apart this week because I'm going to be in, at camp. Um, but we never sleep apart because we're angry with each other, and we never have. Now, there have been times where I am so far to my side of the bed, and she is so far to her side of the bed, that two or three people could get in between if they really wanted to. But we're still in the same bed. You know, Because, um, you know, like everybody, we're real mature all the time. But we have never slept apart, apart because we were angry. But there's times when that relationship, even though it's not ended, even though it's not destroyed, it's strained. Right? Tested. I have good whispers. Thank you. Hopefully that doesn't show up on the recording. I stole it. Um, right? It's tested. It's strained. And you know what? Maybe we're not holding hands or, or, or being all lovey-dovey because we're mad at each other. The relationship's not over, but there's a problem. That's what our sin does. When God placed all of our sin on Jesus Christ when he was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 21, verse 1. The inevitable and ultimate consequence of sin is separation from God. Now, as followers of Christ, it's not permanent. It doesn't remove our salvation, but it breaks that fellowship because God cannot and will not be party to our sins. 1 John 1, verse 6 through 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Thanks, John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
David. And this whole song is more or less devoted to the subject of his sin and his requested forgiveness. David's sin, like most sin, had compounded on him. He started out with a simple flirtation, never intended it to go as far as he went. He never dreamed that it would go as far as it did. But this is what sin does to us. The Bible says that when we are tempted, we should never say God tempted us, because God doesn't tempt us with evil. This is all of in James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. But when are we tempted? When we're drawn away by our own lust or our own desires, or we are enticed by an enemy who wants to see us fall, and that when we give in to that, that conceives, gives birth to sin, that sin grows, and then that growth kills us. Now, maybe it won't kill us physically, maybe it will, but it will definitely cause horrible spiritual and emotional damage. And the account of David and Bathsheba, which is what Psalm 51 is based on, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel 11 through 12, is exactly that. Did it start off bad? David went for a walk on his rooftop. Seems fairly innocent, right? He went for a walk. Yes, on his rooftop. Sorry, Natalie. Back then, they didn't have, right? We might have a back porch or we might have a front lawn. They didn't have that back then. So they, they had flat roofs and they would go up on their roofs when it was warm outside um, to get a breath of fresh air because they didn't have air conditioning or fans or anything of the sort. Um, or sometimes if it was really warm, they would actually sleep out on their roofs. So David woke up from a nap and he went for a walk out on his roof and hey, there's a girl over there taking a bath. Now, that's not right, but it could have ended right there. It could have been, you know what? Hey, I know her. That's my guy, Urias. That's his wife. Nope, I ain't looking at his. Ooh, that ain't right. I'm going inside. I'm going to go play Scrabble or something. Right? Could have walked away. Instead, he called a couple of his guys. Hey, go find out what she's doing for dinner. So they go and they get her. And at that point, she, right, everyone loves to blame David. And yes, he was a scoundrel through the whole thing. But we got to give a little bit of blame to Bathsheba. Because at that point, she could have said, um, no, I'm married. I'm not going to go have dinner with the king. I kind of think she knew where his rooftop was and she placed her bathtub there on purpose, but that's different. She goes and has dinner. And it could have stopped there. They could have looked at each other and David could, you know, I have like 40 wives. I don't need another one. And she could have looked at him and said, I'm married to a guy who's risking his life for you right now. I'm going home. Didn't happen. Turned into adultery, right? It conceived. It gave birth. And then she gets pregnant. And at that point, David could have fixed it, right? Couldn't fix the pregnancy. That was done. But he could have said, whoa, you know what? Obviously, this is wrong. I'm going to repent before God. I'm going to call Uriah. I'm going to repent before Uriah. But he doesn't do that. He has Uriah come home. Hey, Uriah, come home. Tell me how the war's going. And Uriah comes home and he goes, how's, how's everything going? And Uriah goes, oh, it's all fine. Great, 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 great. Go home. Spend the night with your wife. Because he's thinking, wow, this will fix it, right? This will fix it. He's trying to cover up his sin. But Uriah, more noble than David, said, I, am, I, I can't do that. My, my lord Joab, right, the commander of the army, he's out there. The ark is out there. My brothers in arms, they're, they're out camping in a field, fighting this war. How dare I go home and enjoy the pleasures of my home and my wife? So he slept on the steps of the king's house. David wakes up the next morning. Why is Uriah? They tell him what happened. And he goes, well, okay, I got a plan. Uriah, stay one more night before you go back. Gets him drunk. Thinking, well, he's drunk. 
Now he'll go home. Even drunk, Uriah has more integrity. Refuses. So David, knowing now I can't cover this up, he writes Uriah's death warrant. Seals it in an envelope, hands it to Uriah to carry back to Joab. He is so confident in Uriah's loyalty that he wrote his death warrant and had him carry it himself back to the battlefield. And he died. Nathan shows up, tells him a story. There's this guy who had all this wealth, and this one guy had a little lamb, and the wealthy guy stole the little lamb. And David goes, this man shall die. And Nathan, and you, I just, I always want to say, you know what, Nathan had guts. Because he looked at the king, and he said, you're the man. This is what you've done. Now David could have been prideful. He could have been arrogant. He could have made that sin worse and worse and worse and worse. But instead, it broke him. And he repented. The consequences of that sin, even though he was forgiven before God, the consequences of that sin haunted him the rest of his life. But this is where Psalm 51 comes in. This psalm shows us the progression of repentance for David regarding his sin, right? We talked about it as we read through the whole thing. It starts off as a prayer of mercy, then a prayer of cleansing, a prayer of acknowledgement, a prayer of confession. He recognized that he sinned against God, and then he prayed for restoration, for a renewed spirit, a return to God's presence, the joy of his salvation, the ability to praise him, and so forth. Mercy Right? Because when we need to repent, we don't ever come to God and go, I know I blew it, but I'm a pretty good guy, God. Could you fix this? Lord, I know I blew it and I don't deserve it, but I appeal to your mercy for forgiveness. Cleansing, acknowledgement, confession, recognition, and restoration. So I do believe that it is possible for a person to be saved, but because of sin in their lives, they could be lacking the joy of their salvation. For sin blots out the consciousness of God in the life of the believer. It can bring us into misery as the conviction of the Spirit is working upon our heart and we can lose all the joy of our salvation. In fact, we can even get to the place where we become very uncomfortable in church. Has this ever happened to anybody? You guys are awesome. Just so you know, I'm a sinner in case you you don't realize that. Now, I've been a pastor for 18 years. As a pastor for 18 years, there have been seasons in my life where I was downright stupid. And I was involved in some sort of sin that I shouldn't have been. And then I had to go up on Sunday morning and preach. You talk about conviction. It was horrible. It was so hard for me. But that's what happens. True salvation. Now, I don't believe a person is saved because they go to church. I'm glad you're here, but you're not going to heaven because you came here this morning. I don't think a person is going to heaven because at some point in time they said a prayer. You know, maybe uh, uh, you were at some crusade. I know, there's not a lot of crusades lately. Maybe, maybe you went to a church when you were a kid and you said the prayer or whatever it might be. That's not necessarily 
That's where it starts, but that's not necessarily salvation because a lot of people can say that prayer very insincerely. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. And when this happens, we are transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and we become a new creation in Christ where the old person has passed away. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So those who are truly saved will not live in the practice of sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9 reminds us, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Now there is a vast difference between a believer being out of fellowship with God because they've been overcome in some sort of fall and have lost the joy of their salvation and the person who is unregenerate living in sin with no thought of repentance. I've been a Christian for 26 years. I've done a lot of stupid things in those 26 years. A lot of things that have dishonored my God. I've repented over every single one of them. Many of them on multiple occasions. Either because I needed to repent again because I wasn't trusting that he actually forgave me or because I was stupid enough to do the sin again and I needed to repent again. But there's never been a time where I've sinned and thought, wow, you know what? This is just so much better than being saved. So I'm going to run away in my sin. Now, every time my heart breaks because I don't, I don't want to do that to my king. I don't want to do that to the one who died for me. I do sometimes, but I don't want to. So it leads to true repentance. By the way, that quote was from Pastor Chuck. True repentance. It is, of course, possible for Christians to be caught up in some sort of sin for a period of time. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, a true believer will not stay there. They will respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They will repent of that sin. And we have the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we do, he will forgive us. He will bring us back into fellowship with himself and he will restore to us the joy of our salvation. But this requires true repentance. So we're going to go through the ingredients of true repentance. There's six of them from a writer by the name of Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan writer, and he wrote this back in 1685. And it's very, very true. There's a bunch of scriptures that go along with it that we're not going to turn to because I'm going to give you all a little bit of homework. This week, this should all be in your notes. Look up each of these scriptures for yourself. It's good for you. I'm, I may remember to ask you next week if you did it. I may not. Six ingredients. For true repentance. One is the sight of sin. Luke 15, 17. You have to see it. You have to acknowledge it. You have to know that it's there. If you have a blind spot, you don't see that something you're doing is wrong, somebody else can show you. The Spirit will convict you. The Word will show you. Or you can ask somebody else to help you. But you have to know you're sinning. You can't deal with something if you don't know about it. Two, sorrow for sin. Psalm 38, 18. I've been a pastor, like I said, for a while. 
And I've had, on multiple occasions, I've counseled couples, and on several occasions, I've counseled couples where there was adultery involved. And one, just one time, one time, the wife came to me, told me what was going on. Husband came later, he goes, yeah, you know, I kind of made a mistake. Oh, I ripped him a new one. Because that was disgusting to me. He laughed about it. Yeah, you know, yeah, she's real upset. I probably shouldn't have done it. Now, you all know me. He did not have a good day. Because that was, there was no sorrow. Yeah, I did it. But it's like, you know, if you go to a person who's in prison and you say, well, are you sorry for what you did? I'm sorry I got caught. But not really sorry for what they did. Sorrow for sin. Confession of sin. Nehemiah 9.2 So we got to know it's there. We have to be sorry for it. And then we have to confess it. The Bible says in 1 John 1.9 that we confess to God. The Bible says in James chapter 5 that we confess to one another. Oh, but I don't want other people to know what's wrong with me. Huh. It's good for us. I'm not telling you have to meet somebody for the first time. Oh, you're a Christian? Let me tell you everything I've ever done wrong. No, don't do that to people. But people you know, people you trust, our church family, it's okay to talk about those things so you can have accountability, you can have support, you can have encouragement. There has to be shame for sin. Ezekiel 43.10 and Ezra 9.6. Now, Jesus has removed our shame. And when we sin, as believers, he will remove it even more. But if we don't think that there's something wrong with what we've done, there's no acknowledgement. We have to have a hatred for sin. Ezekiel 36, 31, Romans 7, 15 through 23. Read all of Romans 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things which I hate, that's what I find myself doing. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. Anybody in that boat besides me? Yeah. There have been times where I've said something or done something and afterwards... I was horrified by my own actions. And I, I looked at God, I'm like, well, I didn't look at him, but I prayed. I'm like, I, I, I don't know why I did that. I hate it. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want it to be part of my life. I don't, I, why would I do that? But it's happened. And then you turn from sin. Isaiah 55, 7, Acts 26, 20. Right? That's what repentance truly is. You're walking this way, and you repent. You turn around, you walk that way. You're walking towards sin, you turn around, and you walk back towards God. There's a quote in that book where I borrowed those six ingredients, borrowed. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Let's close. David had gone through it, hadn't he? He had sinned. His sin was of the worst kind, adultery leading to murder. But God was gracious and merciful. And even as David prayed, the prophet Nathan said to David, the Lord has forgiven your sins. And David cried out, oh, the joy, the ecstasy of sin forgiven, covered, washed, and that joy can be ours. The joy of living in fellowship with God by the Spirit of God within and upon our life. Walking in the strength and in the power of His Spirit, knowing His victory over sin.
Now, maybe there's someone here today who has never experienced the forgiveness of God, has never turned from their sins to receive Christ as Savior. Maybe you're in this room. Maybe you're online. Maybe you hear this recording later on. You don't have to stay there. Give your life to Christ. Repent of your sin. No. It is death and resurrection is sufficient to save you. And if you need help with that, leave a comment on Facebook. Go to our website, newsonggunnison.net. That's if you're online. If you're here, just come talk to me or somebody else after church. But let us help you. Number two, this is for all of us who do know Christ. Maybe we have been walking with the Lord for a while, but we've given in to some temptation and find that sin is sapping our joy making it difficult for us to enjoy the presence of God in our lives. And there's a simple answer for that. Repent. Be forgiven. Be cleansed and restored by the love, grace, and mercy of God. When we do, he will restore to us the joy of our salvation. Now, I want to encourage each of us to make repentance a regular practice as part of your spiritual disciplines. We talk about the spiritual disciplines of being in the Word, being in prayer, fasting, going to church, service, right? We talk about all these things that are spiritual disciplines, but is repentance one of them that you practice regularly? This is something that's come about in the last, really, six, seven years of my life. It used to be, you know, ten years ago, I did something really stupid. I am sorry. Move forward. And there may not be some egregious sin in your life. You know, maybe you didn't commit murder this week. Good for you. You're not supposed to. But maybe it was something else. And and I'm not going to get nitpicky. Uh, I am nitpicky enough with myself. You'll be nitpicky enough with yourself. Because I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And maybe it's just something that you didn't even think about. But bring it before God. Ask him. Make it a regular part of your worship, of your prayer, of your life. To come before God with a contrite heart. Knowing that we will be cleansed so that we can walk more and more in the holiness he is working out in our lives. Because we live in a world that tells us to pursue happiness. But you will never find that phrase in scripture. We are called to pursue holiness. Which is why we as followers of Christ should look very different from the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of our salvation. Thank you, my King, that no matter how bad we are, because we're all sinners, you've offered us forgiveness and freedom and grace in Christ Jesus our Savior. Father, may we never use that grace as an excuse to sin. But when we do make mistakes, may we always trust in that grace to bring us forgiveness and a restoration of our relationship with you and the joy that you offer us. I love you, Father. Thank you for all you've forgiven me. Help us each to pursue holiness so that we can bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.